Or we'll come to the time in our service now, we'll look at a passage from the Bible, talk about what it means, why it matters, uh, what this means for our lives today. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Acts chapter 9? Acts chapter 9, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 777. And when you found that, would you stand with me? We'll read our passage together. Luke, who is the author of Acts, he writes this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, not the entry he was probably hoping to have. Verse 9, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord... Ananias answered, probably a long ellipsis there. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And now he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised all the havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take prisoners? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving Jesus is the Christ. Now, He continues to preach here, and uh, going to be a pattern for Saul. People want to kill him. So he leaves there, and verse 26, we pick it up. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. Yeah, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in Jesus' name. So... Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, his old buddies, but they tried to kill him. 
When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. We pray for us once more. Ask uh, God's Spirit to speak to us now as we spend this time in His Word. Spirit of God, we ask You to come now and open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what You want to show us here in this passage today. We believe that You inspired this Word to be written, and so this is not a history book only. This is also a living Word that You want to speak something to us today. So would You help us to receive it? And then would you help us to act on what you show us, that we would be not only hearers, but also doers of your word. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, people's stories of coming to faith in Jesus, uh, they never cease to amaze me or encourage me whenever I hear them. I mean, they're so diverse. There's so many different ways that it happens, and though there might be similar elements, nobody's story is the same. They're all unique. Beyond that, their stories are also encouraging and faith-building. When you think about just the limitless means the Holy Spirit has in order to reach somebody, there's no one way that He does it. One story of someone's coming to faith that I return to every now and again is of uh, the atheist famous uh, Professor and author C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you know his story, he was, you might remember him, he's the author of the books, The Chronicles of Narnia. All through his life, he had a number of witnesses uh, to him that uh, influenced him in different ways, even some of his colleagues when he taught at Cambridge and Oxford, guys like J.R. Tolkien. Uh, throughout the years, they encouraged him to consider the truths of the Bible, reflect on them. And as he did this over time, eventually he did come to faith at the age of 32. Now, on his coming to, first of all, a belief just in the existence of God. Stage one, this is what he says. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Then, as he further came to believe in the gospel and understood salvation in Jesus, Lewis stated this, I know very well when, but I hardly know how the final step was taken. See, he clearly saw his conversion as a process. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Now, First of all, we shouldn't, we shouldn't consider that Lewis was some sort of a, a weak-minded fool who was just easily lured into believing fairy tales. No, I mean, this guy was an Oxford professor, fiercely intellectual and logical and a determined rationalist, apparently following his mother's death when he was a young boy. Secondly, we should also acknowledge that although there are some consistent elements, there's, there's things that, that could we could say well, could be repeatable, there's actually... This is a completely unique story. This is only Lewis's story. This is not anybody else's story. We couldn't take his story and say, oh, okay, if I want my friends to know about Jesus, I need to drive them to the zoo. Like, you can't repeat this. What I'd like us all to consider this morning is that the one repeatable part in Lewis's story that we do see is something that we need to all seek to strive for ourselves, and that is a consistent persevering witness in the lives of people that God calls us to, as a church and as individuals. 
Because think about it, how easy would it have been for uh, someone to encounter Lewis's uh, staggering intellect, his sharp wit and rationalism, and just conclude for God, well, clearly that guy's not going to be a Christian. And he's an atheist, he's, he's super smart, he's not, he's not going to come to faith. Or, how simple would it have been for someone to share the gospel with C.S. Lewis, nothing happens, and just to conclude, okay, nothing, I guess that's it. I can walk away with a simple, well, we tried, it's not going to happen. And I say that because, listen, what we see in Lewis's life and what we're absolutely going to see in our passage this morning is that coming to a saving faith in Jesus is not this neat and tidy formulaic process where you just put A and B together and bam, you get a new Christian. It doesn't work like that. I think what we see exemplified here in our passage in the life of Saul of Tarsus is that coming to a saving faith in Jesus is often a much more mysterious and much more drawn-out process that maybe we're comfortable admitting a lot of times. If we forget that, if we forget that it's not this instantaneous thing all the time, we can end up either deciding for God who he's able to reach and just not witnessing to them at all, or we can just end up cutting off our witness, just shutting it down because we don't see immediate results taking place. And if you forget everything else that I say to you this morning, I pray you remember just this one thing. Many times, many times, the message of the gospel needs to simmer. It needs to soak in to the hearts and minds of people, sometimes for years before they will be ready and willing to embrace it and be saved by it. We're going to see that up close and personal here in our passage today as we consider what's happening here in this next part of our series through the book of Acts, Pioneer Church. And along with that, we began last Sunday what a kind of a little mini-series within a series that we called Expanding Beyond Comforts. We're also going to see how God continues to send these assigned friends, these assigned witnesses to these people that he's calling to himself. And in this case, he sends a whole series of these witnesses, and he does this to help facilitate the welcome of this next new kid, into the class, Saul of Tarsus, who is absolutely going to push and stretch the comfort boundaries of the church. So in order to understand what this could look like in our lives, as well as helping us to see what I believe is a need for us to develop a much longer view of our witness, I want to look at our passage this morning quickly in just four ways. I want to show you a line in the sand, a brotherly embrace an encouraging escort, and then finally we'll close out our time, called developing a slow-release view of witness. Okay, these four things, a line in the sand, a brotherly embrace, an encouraging escort, developing a slow-release view of witness. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Acts chapter 9? Follow along with me as we look now at a witness to a Pharisee. So we'll look first of all at a line in the sand. A line in the sand. If you look back at chapter 8 and verse 3 there, you'll see that our passage in chapter 9 actually picks up the story from what we already saw back in chapter 8 where Saul is going on this rampage to destroy the church. And once he believes he's sufficiently suppressed church growth in Jerusalem, well, now he wants to spread out his efforts. He wants to see who he can uh, clean up in these other towns where he's seen those people who fled Jerusalem. They're spreading the church to these other places. So he wants to go there. Shut it down there too. So, 
we see in verse 2 of, our, of chapter 9 here. Look with me there. Saul has asked for letters from the chief priest. Now, these are either uh, letters of introduction, basically jurisdiction requests, hey, can I hunt in your field, or they're extradition orders. One of these two things, that's what these letters are, so that any followers of the way that he finds in Damascus, men or women, he can arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem. I mean, when you look at the the passion that he's seeking to destroy the church, the, the lengths that he's going to stamp out this Jesus brush fire. I mean, man, if Lewis was the most reluctant convert in all of England, Saul of Tarsus, he has got to be the most unlikely convert in the whole Bible. So it's Saul. He heads out on this six-day, 136-mile hunting trip to Damascus. And on the very last day, just before he gets into the town... He wants to unleash a whole new firestorm on the church of Damascus. We see this in verse 3. Saul crosses there something like an invisible line in the sand that Jesus has drawn. We don't know where it is, but all of a sudden he crosses. And at that moment, the minute he crosses, his life is never the same again. It is never the same. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say, Saul... Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, there's a number of things going on here. I want to just highlight a few uh, in this section here very quickly. First of all, verse 4 there, as well as verse 8, shows us, first of all, as a result of Jesus, the, the light of the world, shining on Saul, he is, first of all, stopped in his tracks, knocked to the ground, and he's actually blinded by this encounter. Now, someone said really helpfully that Much like in the book of Daniel, when King Nebuchadnezzar, his animalistic pride becomes manifested outwardly in his punishment when God uh, makes him lose his mind and he lives like an animal for seven years. Very much here, this is what's happening to a large degree with Saul. His, His inward spiritual blindness is now manifested outwardly in his physical blindness. Secondly, there's this whole conversation that takes place between Saul and Jesus. Who are you? I'm Jesus. But then there's this seemingly kind of throwaway comment in verse 7. Where Luke tells us, oh yeah, by the way, the guy's traveling with Saul. They didn't see Jesus, but they heard the voice too. Now what, why would he even mention that? Remember that Luke is actually compiling eyewitness testimonies in order to give to this man, Theophilus, uh, an account of what happened in the early church as well as in Jesus so that he can believe in the gospel. So really, what Luke is giving is corroborating evidence. He's saying, no, Saul wasn't just out in the sun too much after six days and hallucinating. The other guys heard it too. They didn't see Jesus, but they actually heard the same voice. Thirdly, we've talked about this already, but we we, we can't see this enough. End of verse 4. We see how Jesus there so identifies with his church that when he comes to Saul to confront him, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with the church then and now. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. You see this in Matthew 25, for instance. Jesus is talking about uh, the judgment at the end of time over which he will preside. And he says, people will hear then, whatever you did unto the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. Same thing. Finally, I think one of the most striking things we see here is in verse 5. Saul asks this figure, this voice, who are you, Lord? To which Jesus replies, I am am Jesus. Now, I want to just stop here and camp out for a second, because this is really important, what we just saw here, because think about this. With those three words, I am Jesus, Jesus takes 
Everything, everything that Saul thought he knew and hated about Jesus, and in a moment just obliterates it. It's gone. And we say, we, this isn't a passage we often go to uh, around Easter time, but I'll tell you what, we could. Because Saul of Tarsus understands absolutely the implications of Jesus' resurrection. He gets it. Because if Jesus is just some fake hack Messiah going around making up fairy tales about himself and God, and now his followers are running around just continuing those stories, then who cares? He's dismissible, and you've got to just wipe him out, just stop that nonsense so he can get back to church. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, he's standing right here in front of Saul, well, then that means that everything, everything Jesus ever said about himself, about him being the Son of God, all of this, it's true. And Saul knew it. And it totally turned his world upside down. I mean, in a sense, Paul's experience here He becomes Paul, Saul. His experience is almost like Thomas in uh, John 20. Remember, Jesus comes to Thomas after he's risen from the dead. He's like, oh, you you don't think I've really risen? Come on over. Touch the nail prints in my hands. Uh, Put your hand into my side. In the very same way here, with those three words saying, I am Jesus, just like he did to Thomas, Jesus says here to Saul, stop doubting and believe. In that great hymn by the same name, the third verse says these words, This is my Father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And I think what that hymn and this passage show us at the very least is that no matter how scary, no matter how bleak, no matter seemingly out of control circumstances may seem or may look to us, God has not stepped off his throne. He's not pacing the floors of heaven wondering, what am I going to do now? He's in control and he knows what he's doing. He can be trusted to act according to his will. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to like or understand the things that he allows us to go through. But the one great hope of this passage among many we see here in the life of Saul is that no matter how fast Or how far, for instance, we may be watching someone that we love sprinting away from God. The hope here is that there is an absolute truth that could happen. That they may one day as well come to that line in the sand that Jesus has drawn. Where he says in the same way, you may go this far and no further. So that's the line in the sand, a a true hope for everyone here seeking to be witnesses to those in our lives right now that are currently rejecting Jesus, sprinting away from him. Next thing we'll see from our passage is a brotherly embrace. A brotherly embrace. Now, when we come to verse 10, look with me there. It's almost like uh, Luke is giving us a change in the scene. Like if this was a movie, it would be like, now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Paul was having his own trouble with the horses. It sort of seems like he's flipped over. Now we go into Ananias in Damascus. And we see there that this is the first introduction to this next witness that God is going to send into the life of Saul in order to welcome him into the church. And much like last week when the Spirit called Philip to to leave his church plan and to go out into the desert, walk up beside the Ethiopian official's uh, carriage, same thing here. God, through Jesus, he tells Ananias, stop what you're doing. 
And I want you to go down to that house on Straight Street. Okay, so far so good. And although that in itself is not such a big deal, when Ananias is told what he's supposed to do when he gets there, I mean, he's thinking, what, I've either got really bad cell reception or I ate some really bad pizza last night because this cannot, this can't be right. This is a suicide mission. Literally, look at verse 11. The Lord told him, go to the house on Judas, uh, of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come to the place, come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. I mean, this would literally be like, the Spirit coming to an underground church pastor in North Korea and saying, I want you to go down to the palace and ask for a man named Kim Jong-un. I mean, just like Ananias here in, in verses 13 and 14, we'd be like, hmm, what? It's, uh, go to there. Yeah, no, no, actually, I'm not going to go there. Uh, that sounds, I don't mind telling you, Jesus, that's a super bad idea. Uh, I know who that is, and apparently you don't, but uh, we're, I don't think we should be doing that, and this is why. But this, I tell you what, this is the very first place where we see again. God is clearly showing him to do something, and it's hard. He's calling him to do something difficult, to step outside of his comfort zone, because here's the very first place where we see what I was talking about at the beginning with Lewis. Maybe we'd want to argue he had good reasons to think so, but what we're seeing here is that Ananias ultimately sees Saul of Tarsus as somebody who is beyond God's reach. He's beyond God's ability to, to, to work in any way, to influence in any way. And I think we know that because when God gives him this very clear command to go and do this, he still proceeds to provide the sovereign, omniscient God of the universe information about things he hadn't considered yet. Well, Jesus, did you know that he happens to be here to put me in prison? Like, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I know. And I think the truth is that in our own lives, we probably have people, if we're willing to admit it, we have people that we've done the very same thing to, family members, friends, whoever, people that we have concluded for God are just outside of his reach, too far gone to be helped. There can be all kinds of good reasons in our minds about why that happened. Maybe there's someone that deeply hurt you. Maybe there's someone that every time you bring up Jesus' name, they just respond with hostility and abuse. Maybe they're just the most wicked, evil person you know. And yet, although Saul is all of those things to Ananias, and probably more, Jesus' command is still, go. Go. I want you to place your hands on this fearful man and pray for him to be healed. I want you to be a witness to him. I want you to welcome him into the class. And the reason that Jesus gives him for doing this, second half of verse 11, it's incredible and it's absolutely missable. I think Ananias missed it too. You see what Jesus says, I want you to do this for he is praying. Okay? For he is praying. So what? Why is that weird that a Pharisee would be praying? Don't they do that all the time? Yes, but listen, if you look up at verse 9, we see that after his uh, encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus for three days. Saul is in utter darkness. Utter darkness. He doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. He has nothing to do but just sit with his own thoughts. Not unlike Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days. 
sitting in darkness, nothing to do but think. And no, it's not explicit in the text, but I'll tell you what, I believe that after three days of fearful humiliation, of the shock of what just happened, as well as deep, painful processing, finally, Saul the Pharisee is beginning to crack. He is breaking under the weight of all that he's coming to understand about Jesus, and for the very first time, he's praying to him. He's praying to Jesus for the very first time in his life, who he now sees to be the Son of God that he claimed to be. And then i got to tell you this. That right there is why we can't write people off. It's why we can't do that. It's, it's why we can't think, oh, they're just too far gone. Oh, oh, they didn't respond to my witness. I guess I should just give up. Because listen, just like Ananias, we don't know what the Spirit is doing in someone's heart. We don't know what's happening behind closed doors. And at the very moment God calls you to do your part in the witness to someone's life that you figure was a lost cause, they may be praying. They may be praying for the very first time. And that's why you're being sent. And look at the beautiful results of what happens of Ananias' obedient trust in God and his willingness to step outside of his comfort zone. Verse 17 through 19. He went to the house, entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may again be filled, be see again and filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. You see there, verse 17, first of all, placing his hands, placing his hands on this fearful man. What must that have been like to walk in there and do that? And placing his hands on him, yeah, it's an act of obedience. That's what he was told to do. It's also an act of embrace. It's an act of embrace to come in and place his hands directly on him. And it's an embrace also, look, that comes with the extension of Jesus' welcome to this outcast. You see, calling him Brother Saul. How un unbelievable would such words have been on his mouth just a day ago? Brother Saul. Did you know that God's family doesn't have probationary members, though? When someone is welcomed in to God's family, they become immediately a son or daughter of God, and we dare not treat someone that God has welcomed in as anything other than that. So this is why I continue to remind us. I'm going to continue to remind you and myself, as long as I serve as your pastor here, God has not called us to be bouncers and gatekeepers of the kingdom of God. He's called us to be greeters. He's called us to be greeters. I mean, just imagine. Imagine all that would have been lost if Ananias had not been willing to step outside of his comfort zone and welcome this new student to the class. And imagine all that could be gained as well if you will only do the same in the lives of those difficult, resistant, defiant, fearful people that God may be calling you to witness to as well. We don't know what the Spirit's doing. It's a line in the sand, a brotherly embrace. The third point here is much faster, but 
I think it's also important for us to see how God provides an encouraging escort. An encouraging escort. Now, this is important because once Saul comes to faith in Jesus, he receives the same Holy Spirit, the same power from on high that Jesus promised we would receive. He promised the disciples, Acts 1-8, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. He receives the same Spirit, but now he's going on another rampage. Only this time it's a, a campaign to preach the gospel, prove to people that Jesus really is the, the Christ. But we see in verse 26 then, he comes, he shows up in Jerusalem, tries to repeat the exact same thing he saw Ananias doing, coming in being like, hello brothers. But rather than embracing him, everyone's like, ah, let's get out of here. I would love to have seen that Saul being like, brothers, I want to embrace you. And they're like, no, 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 we don't, we don't like to be embraced, thanks, we're good. Nobody's buying that this guy is one of the brothers, sorry. And it takes what we see, it's only because of what we see in verse 27, when our old friend Barnabas, this son of encouragement that we were introduced back in Acts 4, he'd sold his field and brought the money to the church. It's only as he's willing to vouch for Saul, to, to escort him in, that Saul is accepted into this larger family of the church of Jerusalem. It's almost like Barnabas is the star witness for the defense. He comes to the stand and he says, no, no, this guy's legit. He really is one of us. He's received the same spirit and I've watched him preaching fearlessly in Jesus' name. And on the basis of his escorting, of his coming alongside and of his testimony he gives, Saul then is welcomed in. He's, he's permitted to be, become part of this movement, this, this church here in Jerusalem, to be identified with him. Look, so much so in verse 30, so much so that when Saul's life is threatened by the gang he used to run with, these same disciples who he used to persecute now come to his aid and are referred to as his brothers. And I think we see two things here in this brief episode. First of all, I think we see that we see the same need in this church in Jerusalem to have a much larger view of God than they currently have. Because just like Ananias, before Saul has even said anything, they've already decided this got to be a trap because there's no way God could reach somebody like that. There's no way he'd even want to, so this must be a trap. He must be lying. We need to guard ourselves, even today in our church, from just writing people off like that, assuming they're too far beyond God's reach. There is no one beyond his reach. That's what we see so clearly in this passage. Second thing, I think what we see with Barnabas' escort of Saul into the Jerusalem church is how we can extend Jesus' continued welcome, his continued welcome to the newly adopted outcasts into the church. Because in the same way that it was terrifying for Ananias to go to Saul's house, walk in there and not knowing what was going to happen, I promise you, it was got to be equally terrifying for Saul to walk into this Jerusalem church that he had so violently persecuted. He doesn't know what kind of reception he's going to get there. And as God continues to empower our witness, and we see more and more men and women, I pray, coming to faith in Jesus here in this church, we're going to need a lot more Barnabases here as well. We're going to need those who are willing to come alongside those people who come here and, and, and come into this place but are terrified, actually, of church. Maybe they've driven by this place a thousand times and just thought, man, that place, I wonder what they do in there. A bunch of lunatics 
sitting in there, you know, doing whatever, talking about getting washed in blood, lamb's blood. I don't know what's going on. And now all of a sudden, they're sitting in that place beside those lunatics and just trying to figure out what, what's going on in their mind, how that happened. We're going to need some Barnabases to come along so that we can see we don't just extend Jesus' welcome at once. We don't do it just one time. It's a welcome that must continue to be extended. We need people to be brought in and, and someone to say, hey, this is, this is somebody, this is my friend. Or to go to somebody who you see is new, to welcome them in, facilitate their welcome into this new scary environment so that they can be grown. And they can become another thriving part of this family. Okay, we've looked at a line in the sand, a brotherly embrace and encouraging escort. As we close this morning, I want to finish by talking about developing a slow-release view of witness. Developing a slow-release view of witness. Now, some of you know that my wife is a pharmacist. She is. Uh, uh, she has a whole crazy compendium of knowledge in that beautiful head, which I am baffled by. And, but one of the smaller, more digestible pieces of information which she's shared, and I could actually understand, is about these types of medication. The types of medication that are formulated to deliver that drug that you're taking over a controlled rate over a long period of time instead of all at once. These are called uh, modified release or slow release tablets. I don't know if you know this. I tell you that because if you're familiar with this story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, one of the things, one of the ideas you often hear repeated is that it was this momentary, boom, instantaneous thing. That God just uh, uh, delivered the right drug to Saul and in a moment he went from hating Jesus to loving him. What I'd like to suggest to you is that that may not actually be the case. That Saul's conversion, I believe, is actually the result of a long, sustained, slow-release witness through many different people over many different years that we just see coming to a head here in our passage in Acts chapter 9 on his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, it takes a little bit of piecing together, but one of the clearest places you see this idea is later on in Acts, when Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, he's recounting this story of his conversion in Acts 26. Details are basically identical, but we're just given more information about the conversation he and Jesus had. So Jesus says, again, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But then he says this. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Hmm. Goads, if you don't know, are almost like bits in a horse's mouth. They are these sharp sticks that are attached to a plow or even at the end of a shepherd's staff that, that farmers and shepherds use to encourage their animals. We'll say that nicely. They, they encourage their larger animals to, to stay on the road or to not move out of the line that they're trying to plow. But when you apply that same image to a person, doesn't that imply that Jesus has actually been leading and shepherding Saul for a while now. Think about it. Every time Saul would sit down with his synagogue buddies, talking about this crazy movement called the way, this Jesus and his message, these crazy apostles and all this trying to wreck, wreck the church, wreck the temple. Every time he does that, he's sitting around discussing these things, but Saul, who is also a deeply uh, intellectual and logical man, just like Lewis. He's daily being confronted at the same time. 
He's being goaded with these truths, which he's finding it harder and harder to explain away. And then beyond these regular, consistent witnesses and goadings, I think one of the most significant goadings in Saul's life was actually also Stephen, the first martyr of the church. I think his witness before the Sanhedrin had a a massive, really crippling effect to the the, the fortress that Saul had built around his heart. I think it haunted him. And I think it was one of the reasons why maybe he so passionately pursued the church to wipe it out because he just wanted to do anything and everything he could just to block out this, this force that was coming against all the ways that he knew and understood God and life. And it's quite likely, actually, that he was one of the most impactful goads in Saul's life because there's good evidence and many commentators agree that the whole reason we actually have Stephen's speech recorded in Acts 7 is because Saul was there while he was giving it. He was sitting right there as he gave it. And that's why he just recounted it later to Luke. Here's where I'm going with this. I think we'd all agree, Saul's conversion, it was as unlikely as can be And it's miraculous however it happened. Salvation always is. But if Saul's conversion wasn't this big instantaneous event, but the culmination of a lifetime of small, seemingly insignificant events, I think that shows us something really powerful in our own witness today that we seek to give as a church and as individuals. It shows us that developing a slow-release view of witness, a slow-release view of of salvation and discipleship, it's not a cop-out. It's actually entirely biblical, and it's ultimately a really freeing way to view our witness in the world. Those of you who were were with us a couple of years ago at retreat when Bill Clem came as our speaker, he gave this really amazing visual to think about. He talked about this scale of 0 to 10, and the beginning of the scale, okay, here's our conversion. And then everything, every step we grow in our discipleship to become more like Jesus, that brings us closer to 10. 10, we're not going to achieve in this life, but we are working towards that. But he also told us about the negative 10 up to zero. Negative 10 is full on, I hate Jesus, I want nothing to do with him. Moving us up to zero, which is conversion. And he said, to consider our witness, your witness in someone's life isn't always going to be helping them move from negative one to one. Your witness in someone's life, the point of your witness to them may be to move them from negative eight to negative six. You're called into their life to move them one step further away from hating Jesus and one step closer to loving him. Isn't that freeing? To know that your witness isn't useless if somebody didn't pray to receive Christ after it was done. Because think about it. If, if sharing the gospel with someone is some just silver bullet that just decides their salvation or damning in that moment, what does that mean? What does that mean for your husband or your wife, your mother, your father, your son, your daughter, whoever, who's heard the gospel and hasn't responded yet? What does that mean? Should we just write them off? So we just say, well, I guess it's too far gone. Shared the message, they didn't receive it. Or does it show us something else? Do we see in the conversion of Saul after years of kicking against the goads that there may still just be hope for those people that maybe we've, we've given up on? 
His story frees us. It frees us to see, no, no, continue. Keep persevering in that witness. Even with those who presently reject the gospel, to develop that slow release view of witness, see it as a longer term process, and God's just called you to one part along that path. In the end, I'm hoping that what we've looked at here this morning and this message actually goads all of us to consider this important question to ask yourself, honestly, who have I stopped praying for? We've all got those people in our lives. Who have we just decided, concluded for God? Okay, I guess they're not, I guess they're not going to receive Jesus. I should just move on to someone else maybe. Who have you stopped praying for? I want to ask you if, you, if you, if you've been impacted by what you've heard this morning, if you would join me, we're going to take some time right now to just pray together as a church family. We're going to take a minute thinking of that person or those people, whoever it is, and I want us to renew our commitment to them, renew our commitment to God to be witnesses to them, to continue to pray for them, to start again what we've dropped off doing, trusting that, A, we can't see what the Spirit is doing. We don't know what he's doing right now in their lives, and they may be praying right now. Also trusting that even if even the Apostle Paul needed a simmering, slow-release witness to come to faith, maybe that means there's hope for our loved ones too that are currently rejecting this, the only hope of life that they have. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to inspire that renewed hope, so let's Go to him right now in prayer. Prayers of repentance for giving up. As well as prayers that the Spirit would give us faith, that we could trust him to simply be obedient to the part that he's called us to. And that we may just be one part of someone's long path of coming to faith in Jesus. Let's take that time. Let's do it right now here and pray for those people.